0: hello and welcome to the all 80s movies podcast the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters the flops and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies the 1980s i'm your host bill bant and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host jason massick ding dong who is it
1: pizza delivery
0: what's the damage
1: six so far
0: That's right, listeners, we are discussing with spoilers aplenty the 1982 horror movie The Slumber Party Massacre, produced by Santa Fe Productions, distributed by New World Pictures. It stars Michelle Michaels, Robin Still, and Michael Villella. Directed by Amy Holden Jones, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 17 minutes. This kicks off our annual Splatter Cinema Month. Where all the movies we discuss in the month of October are horror movies. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is
1: What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. You bring the pizza, I'll bring the drill. When Trish, Michelle Michaels, decides to invite her high school basketball teammates over for a slumber party, she makes three big mistakes. Number one, she snubs the pretty new girl next door. Robin Still. Number two, she forgets about teenage pranksters Jeff and Neil. David Milburn and Joe Johnson. Number three, her biggest mistake. She doesn't know about an escaped mental patient, Michael Vilela, who will soon be dropping in on the party. With his portable drill. Written, directed, and produced by women, Slumber Party Massacre will scare you right down to the core. You'll love it. The Slumber Party Massacre. Yes, the Slumber Party Massacre. Right, I see it in different places listed differently. The title, that is. It's either The Slumber Party Massacre or just Slumber Party Massacre. But if you watch the film... The title card comes up almost immediately, and it is The, The, Taha Slumber Party Massacre. Just want to make that differentiation right off the bat here. And uh, speaking of the synopsis, Bill Bant, I absolutely love it when a movie lists the rules the characters mustn't break, or in this case, the mistakes they cannot make, because then you know they're absolutely going to make those mistakes in the movie And it's fun watching for it to happen. I'm just going to keep going here if you'll indulge me, Bill Ban. I've got a couple questions for you right off the bat. Question number one. Did your wife Hillary recommend this movie? I think she did. I have to assume she did. Unbelievable. Incredible. Wonderful. We should have had her as a guest on this podcast now, but that's okay. I'm sure we're going to get her on eventually for one of these, but I just absolutely love it. This has Hillary written all over it. And uh, do you know offhand if she considers this film a cult classic?
0: She watched it with me last night and uh, she didn't seem that big of a fan. Oh. So I was kind of surprised.
1: Okay. All right. Okay. But uh, yes, our our behind-the-scenes show producer recommended this yet she's not even the, that big of a fan that's just that's oh that even makes it better so i think
0: she wanted to torture us
1: uh how are you doing tonight bill
0: Bant? i am doing well it's october halloween is coming and what a better way to spend it than talk horror movies
1: a hundred percent it's all about splatter cinema month it certainly is
0: so let's get into earliest memories of the slumber party massacre jason start us off i will thanks
1: bill Bant hey man, I've never seen this movie. And although I am a scaredy cat and not an aficionado of the horror genre, I am aware that this genre will never die. And thus I have a healthy respect for it. And honestly, from simply looking at the poster of this movie and sort of watching the trailer, I was absolutely pumped to see this because it looked like a ton of fun. And I said I only sort of watched the trailer because I had it on mute. I was doing something else, and I had it on in the background. And although it is full of boobs, which is very attractive to me, the trailer is like two minutes long, and it gives away all the kills in this movie. I had to turn it off. I was like, oh, my God, I'm seeing everything. And as for the poster, oh, it's absolutely amazing. If listeners out there haven't seen the poster for The Slumber Party Massacre, the females in the film, they're in the center of the poster. They're cowering on the floor, kneeling on the floor. One of them's lying down. And then you have the killer standing in front of them. From the waist down, we only see him. He's standing spread eagle with the drill between his legs. It's total sexual innuendo. It's the best. And the great thing is that of the four actresses featured on the poster, only one of them is actually in the movie. Absolutely amazing. So right off the bat, when you look at the poster, you're like, I know what this movie is all about. It's going to be exploitation. It's going to be sexual innuendo. And it's a slasher movie through and through. So anyway, even though I do not have a childhood perspective on this, it looked like a blast. And I knew it certainly wouldn't be a boring viewing experience, like, uh, you know, going through the routine drill, if you will. What are your earliest memories of the Slumber Party Massacre?
0: Yep, Jason, I'm ashamed to admit that this was my first watch also. But you cannot forget the iconic VHS box cover, which you just described of the four scantily clad ladies looking up as what we perceive to be the killer holding the giant drill. I would have loved to have rented this movie, but what would my parents say when I brought it home? So my parents, you know, let me rent. Poltergeist or Stephen King movie, but uh, I usually had to catch most of my horror movies on cable uh, when everybody was asleep. And I don't remember ever seeing that this movie was on cable. I'm sure it was, but I just never caught it. Even though I didn't see the movie, anytime I heard the word Slumber Party, I immediately think Slumber Party Massacre. This movie certainly had an impact on me, even though I never got to see it. So thanks to this podcast, I can finally see it. That makes for a great excuse. So that's my yeah earliest memories a couple days ago.
1: Outstanding.
0: So this is the first time for the both of us to see this movie. So what are your initial thoughts of it, Jason?
1: All right, let's get into it. This should be fun, man. This movie is only an hour and 17 minutes long. And I thought I'd never get through it because I had to pause it to take notes about a hundred times in the first 10 minutes. I just kept stopping it to take notes. It was great. Right off the bat, we hear the organ music and we're off. We see the title card, The Slumber Party Massacre, just not wasting any time at all. And we learn quickly from a newspaper headline that mass murderer Russ Thorne is on the loose. He broke out of prison and, well... That's easy. We know where this is going. So again, not wasting any time. Speaking of not wasting any time, we don't waste any time at all getting to those 80s boobs. Whether it be at home or in the locker room showers or during the slumber party, 80s boobs galore in this movie. It's great. This is a Roger Corman production, New World Pictures, through and through. It is an exploitation film. It is a slasher film. So what else do you expect, especially from the year 1982? So in this movie, our protagonist, Trisha, well, her parents are going away for the weekend and they're leaving her alone. She's 18. She's going through a cleansing process, it seems, apparently as if uh, she's reached a new stage in her life and she's ready to throw away childish things and She's putting uh, her stuffed animals along with a Barbie doll into a box. She takes them outside and puts them in the trash. And But, but wait, we can probably assume is the killer happens to be standing right there out in the open in the sun on the street and takes the Barbie doll from the trash can pretty much in front of Trish. But somehow, sweet, sweet 18-year-old Trish doesn't see him at all. She just turns and goes the opposite direction. And... I just have to say, we're off. We know exactly what we're in store for. We're like, oh boy, this is going to be awesome. Hey, Bill Bant, I've got a question for you right here. I'm just going to keep asking you questions, man. Sounds good. Is this the best high school girls basketball scrimmage ever, ever filmed?
0: That's in the complaint department, man. (laughs) That is the worst girls basketball game I've ever seen in my life. Oh,
1: come on. I'm shocked. Maybe it's the sexiest. I mean, with the girls wearing their nylons under their shorts, super hot. They must have been hot playing basketball in nylons.
0: Their game was so
1: bad, it was distracting me from their short shorts and tank <laughs> right. tops. Um, And then after the scrimmage, the girls hit the showers. And here's my next question for you, Bill. Would you categorize this as softcore porn? That scene, yes. I know, right? That's. I was like, oh my goodness, we are in store for something special here. I didn't know how far it was going to go. I was like, they are... Just showing everything. I mean, we don't get full frontal, but we get boobs. We get butts. How do you usually say it? Butt cheeks. Yeah, that's right. So I have to admit, ladies and germs, this movie is surprisingly easy to watch. It is a quick watch. I was going to say, originally, you know, about, I don't know, a few minutes in, I was like, oh, this looks like it's going to be a step above a student film. It's not high quality. But honestly, man, you know, it's not... Shot that poorly? Sure, there are some shots that are cliché, the tropes are ever-present, there's a shit-ton of continuity errors, but there is some decent camera movement in this and some clever cutting. There's even some symbolism, overt as it may be. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen. Although, I must say for a movie that's only an hour and 17 minutes, they still manage to waste a lot of that time while giving us absolutely no story whatsoever, and that's pretty impressive. Impressive unto itself. I think it's an easy watch, though, because it's brilliant in its simplicity. It totally telegraphs who's going to get killed and what's going to happen next. So you just hope it's going to be fun and gory and you can laugh. And if that's what you expect, then you're in for a treat. And speaking of the kills, we're getting to the second kill of the film. And I am like, what? We see the killer's face out in the open already. We're minutes into this movie, and I'm like, fascinating. They're just going to show us the killer right off the bat. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. This is a choice. I'm going to go with it. Guess what? It's not interesting at all. It's not interesting in the least. But I think it was done purposefully because there's no mystery in this movie at all. We know that this particular gentleman is a mass murderer that escaped from prison. We know he's killed five people in Venice, California, back in 1969. Now it's 82, and he's out. And that's it. When we see him, he might as well be a John Doe. No motivation whatsoever. He's just an average dude wearing jeans, boots, a red T-shirt, and a jean jacket. Maybe he's about 40 years old, kind of nondescript. Got a little bit of a receding hairline, but grayish hair. Average height, average build, totally average except for the fact that he's running around with a huge power drill, just out in the open. Amazing. I mean, in the end, we learn, of course, he's somewhat mentally deranged, but that's obvious. He must be if he's going on this killing spree. But they reveal his face because there is no mystery to be had. There's He has no connection to anybody. Spoiler alert, sorry. There's no connection whatsoever. He has no backstory. There's nothing to him at all. He's just the killer. It's just about watching him kill everybody. That's it, folks. Moving on to one of our protagonists, Valerie, played by the beautiful Robin Still. She is gorgeous. I think she's quite beautiful. And she looks like she's 30 years old in this. She just looks mature to me. That's just an initial thought. She's only, I think, 21 or 22 when they shot this, but she still looks so mature. She's gorgeous. Look, there's a couple of not- half bad scares in this. There's a drill that comes through the door at one point that's going to be the the peephole, I guess what you call it, for the front door for Coach Jana or Coach Rachel Jana. You get Diane scaring us at the kitchen window uh, during the slumber party. Uh, there's some misdirections with like the neighbor, Mr. Content. What kind of name is that? Mr. Content? I was, at first when I heard it, I was like, is this name Content? Like they were just looking for content and they're like, yeah, that sounds good. We're going to name him Mr. Content. But it's content. Anyway, He at some point, you know, he's got a cleaver. He's, he's kind of establishing his cleaver skills, taking out the, the local snails. Just weird. But so there's some fun stuff in this, I, I got to point out there. Look, we keep intercutting back and forth. But this is like there's almost like two through lines in this movie. We've got one storyline, which is the slumber party, which is takes place at Trish's house. And she's got her girlfriends, uh, Jackie and Kim and Diane over, and they're going to have some girl fun. It's a girls' night. And then across the street lives Valerie, who's the new girl at school, and Valerie is home alone with her younger sister, Courtney. Um, We learned that their parents are divorced, and they're out of town for whatever reason. So all the girls are in their respective homes alone, but we're watching the slumber party on one hand, and on the other hand, we're watching Valerie and her younger sister, and the intercut back and forth. And I'm going, why? Why do we even need to know about this relationship with Valerie and her younger sister? Well, they give us kind of a relationship. We understand their bond. Does it have any impact on the story whatsoever? Does their relationship come through in some way that plays into how scenes unfold or the, involves how they end up teaming up on the killer in the end or something? Or you know, No, nope, nope. So that's just an initial thought. It's just I'm just totally confused as to why they were going back and forth between the slumber party, the girl's uh, relationship in that sequence or that through line. And then on the other hand, again, Valerie and her younger sister, Courtney, and their scenes together. Anywho, we know nothing, nothing at all about these people outside of them being friends in high school. We know that Valerie is the new girl at school and her parents are divorced. Otherwise, all the dialogue and conversation in this is superficial and it's amazing. We just don't know anything about them. And I, we really don't need to. We just don't need to. All we know is that these girls are really concerned about the score of the Dodger game from the night previous. That's what they're concerned about. It's, it's freaking brilliant. They're so concerned about the score of the baseball game the night previous that they call their gym teacher or coach, Jana, to find out how the Dodgers managed to score six runs. What is happening in this movie? But regardless, they're true blue Dodgers fans. So for those Dodgers fans out there, this movie is for you. This is a party movie. This is a Roger Corman production. This is an exploitation movie. It's gore. It's nudity. It's sexual language and innuendo. What I do love is that this film has a sense of humor. I'd almost say it was sneaky funny. We'll probably talk about this in the research later on as how it kind of came out that way. Now, it definitely doesn't take itself seriously. I know what, you know, it knows what it is. It knows what people want. And voila, there you go. It's got a bunch of holes, literally and figuratively. But I think back in 82, you got to strike while the iron's hot. You got these slasher films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the 13th out there. And they're gaining popularity and it's a trend. So let's get in on it. Cash in, cash out. And they did here. Obviously, it worked because it spawned a couple of sequels and a couple of side trilogies. And look. It's not great, but it's not the worst movie ever. You just watch it with your friends, with the right attitude, knowing what you're getting into, and this can be a really good time. And it was for me for an hour and 17 minutes. That's what I got for initial thoughts. How about you, Bill Bant? Man, the Slumber Party Massacre. I must tell you, Jason, the
0: 13-year-old in me would have loved this movie. Lots of pretty girls showing their assets. (laughs) Yeah. It's not that scary, and the makeup effects are pretty good. Nowadays, though, any movie I watch is a learning experience for me, especially as a storyteller or a screenwriter. How do they structure the story? What works and what doesn't work in the movie? Why do characters make the choices that they make? How did they make use of the locations? What would I have changed if I wrote this movie? This movie is a perfect example of getting a lot out of watching an okay movie. If you tell me the slumber party massacre is terrible and you think it's a piece of garbage, I get it. If you tell me you think it's great and it's a yearly horror movie staple, I actually get that too. The story to this movie is very simple. A serial killer escapes and he's back on a killing spree and these girls are caught in the middle of it. While holding a slumber party. Not much more to it. But how do you keep the audience engaged? What I liked about this movie is. I like that most of the movie takes place at one location. Trish's house and street. Ideal when making a low budget movie. Because the more locations. The more money it's going to cost you. So keep it simple. Uh, Most of the kills in this movie. Were not because people were making dumb decisions. They were just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Russ was not targeting them for revenge. They were just there. And even though the characters are mostly one dimensional, I didn't find myself rooting against them. You think about slasher films and you hope and cheer for characters' deaths. I didn't do that here. So that was a positive. What I didn't like, I didn't find that there's really any tension in this Mm -hmm. movie. There wasn't really a point where I felt the least bit scared. Everything was a little too predictable. At least kind of make me nervous at some point in the movie. I just didn't get that. I didn't get those kind of emotions. Everything was just very by the numbers. The same thing you said, Jason. They showed way too much of the killer. You look back at Jaws, and the best thing to happen to that movie was that the shark wasn't working. So what did they do? Leave it to the audience's imagination. They did it during the first kill, but then after that, when poor Linda's running around the school, we just just see him. And I didn't find him very scary. He's not not impressive. He's not menacing. There's nothing exciting about him. So that was kind of a a negative. This movie certainly has its highs and lows, but really impressed when a low-budget movie can get made. It's very difficult to do. I mean, if you read the making of the Czechoslovakian massacre or Evil Dead, you really have to cut corners, and everyone has to chip in to make it work. I applaud the fact that they got this movie done, and enjoyed the simplicity of it. So that's my initial thoughts of the movie.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. It is definitely by the numbers. Everything in here is on the surface. There is no depth. There is no relationship development outside of the relationship between Valerie and her younger sister Courtney, which. We don't really even get into that much. We They have a rapport. There's a bit of camaraderie, but there is no real uh, story here. What's missing for me, as you were uh, explaining your initial thoughts, Bill Bant, is lore. What I love about some slasher films is there's some sort of lore. Sometimes there's a fantastical element. You know, there's some kind of backstory where you're waiting for a kind of reveal of what is the connection. Usually there is a connection between the killer and the victims, or there is some sort of hidden motivation that comes out that is revealed anything. But here it literally is just about a killer picking off his victims one by one. And you're just watching it for what you hope to be are inventive kills, creative kills. And if you like the, the makeup effects and they are pretty decent in this, then you're looking for some good, uh, some good splatter, right? So there's some of this in here. But to, yeah, to me, this is just a total party movie where you, you, uh, you fire up the popcorn with your friends and you have fun with it, poking fun at it, and knowing that probably the, the filmmakers, I think, as they were, are in on the joke as well. So everybody can kind of have a good time with it. But it is not to be taken seriously, that's for sure.
0: Agreed. So let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from the Slumber Party Massacre?
1: All right, let's get into it. So uh, my first favorite scene is a little ways into the film, and I'm calling it John and Diane's death in the garage. So I guess technically it's a dual death, if you will. And now we understand because it's revealed right from the beginning that there's this uh, kind of this guy, uh, Russ... What's his name? Russ Thorne. Thank you very much. Pretty good name. Pretty good name for a killer. Russ Thorne is on the loose and he is a murderer and he's taken out a couple of people. He he's taken out this poor young electrician. She's a, she's a woman that works for, excuse me, yeah, like the phone company. We see her get taken out and then she, he, he takes out poor Linda who gets locked into the, in the school. Brink Stevens. Yeah, she's great. She has a wonderful scream. Uh, so she gets taken out, but now the slumber party has begun and we have Trish and Jackie and Kim and Diane all at the party. And we know that Diane is dating a young gentleman, another high schooler named John Minor. And uh, here was a little fun misdirection uh, earlier in the film when Diane is guess, walking back from school and we're led to believe or we were thinking that maybe the killer is creeping up on her from behind, but it turns out to be her goofy kind of bubbling, this oversized dude named John Minor. And clearly they're connected and they're having a good relationship and they're very thirsty for one another. And so they're just horny young teenagers. Well, Diane has joined a friend here, friends for the slumber party and who decides to crash the party? Well, that would be John Minor. He just decides to show up in his car, and he pulls right into the driveway, and Diane comes out and hops in. And actually, before that, she hops in. She has him pull into Trisha's garage, and then she hops into the car with John. And John is all wanting to get handsy and play a little slap and tickle with Diane in the car. But Diane feels she should, well, out of loyalty to... The idea of this slumber party and hanging out with the girls, that being a a girl's night, she wants to stick it out with the girls. And she's like, well, I should go inside and be with Trish and the the ladies. But John convinces her to come over to his place. So before she does, Diane goes back inside and makes an excuse to Trish to leave. And Trish is like, you don't need permission from me. It's okay." So she goes back into the garage, all kind of excited because she's going to get to go back with John to his place for some sexy time. So she climbs back into the car and she nuzzles up to good old John. And all of a sudden, John's head falls off. That's right. He's been decapitated. Awesome. Then our killer, Russ Thorne, appears with his giant power drill. And Diane freaks out. She climbs through over John's decapitated body, over uh, through the driver's side and out of the car. She manages to get out, but it's only moments before the killer and his power drill have Diane cornered and she crumples to the ground as he stands in front of her spread eagle, very similar to the poster image with his drill hanging down between his legs. Oh yeah, the symbolism is all there in your face. They are not holding anything back. It's all right on the surface. So she screams, and then we see the silhouette, the shadow of the killer raise his drill and drive it downward, and that's the end of Diane. It's a fun sequence. Everything's very predictable. You know what's going to happen, but there's some good makeup effects, and it's funny in a way. As I was expressing in my initial thoughts, I think this movie is in on the joke. I think they are aware of what this is. So... It is half serious, half parody. So when we see Diane climb back into the car, in the garage, and John's head falls off, it's great. (laughs) It's just great. Is it a little bit of a surprise? Yeah, but not completely shocking. We know he's probably been offed at this point because earlier we knew, we, we are aware that the killer's hiding out in the garage. But that moment is great when his head falls off. And then um, I laughed at the overt sexuality or sexual innuendo and symbolism with uh, the killer standing over Diane with the drill hanging down between his legs. It just cracked me up. I had fun with that scene.
0: Yeah, definitely good call with this scene when we see Diane go back into the garage to meet up with Mr. Minor and, you know, all right, he's dead. And she goes to snuggle up to him. And you think for sure, because the MO right now is somehow a drill is in your head. So that's what I'm thinking. He's going to fall into her lap and you'll see the drill, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that the head fell off, I did definitely did one of those. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So it was a good Good surprise. And yeah, poor Diane. Really tries to escape and just doesn't sit there screaming. Yeah, I thought she had to a, get sh- a shot she actually,
1: there for a second. I thought she might get out.
0: Yeah, she got to the garage door but just couldn't open it. And then poor Diane. Yeah. Who was driving me crazy. I don't know if you felt the same way about this. To me, she looks a ton like Allison Bree.
1: Oh, okay. I could, from see, Community. That. I could see that. Every time I bit. saw it,
0: that's all I could see.
1: I'm a big Ellison Bree fan. I am too. Yeah. There's a couple actors in this that I could have sworn were actors from other movies. And I was completely incorrect upon doing the further research. Really funny. There was a couple recognizable people, but they weren't who I thought they were. Yeah. There certainly was a lot of that.
0: All right. So moving on to my first favorite scene, which happens pretty soon after your scene. And we did the opening quote about it and uh, poor pizza man bites the dust. So they're having the slumber party, and the girls decide to order some pizza. They're, they did the classic no anchovies. Right. Oh, I think they got mushroom and, and sausage. And they're all sitting around. We hear the knock on the door, and they're like, oh, yeah, if we forgot about the pizza man. And at this point, Jeff and Neil have uh, shown up because they were playing a little practical joke on the girls by killing the power to try to scare them. And But they, they're now invited to the party and because Jeff got punched in the face pretty pretty good. And they're trying to tend to his uh, black eye. And you're like, okay, pizza guy. And the line's just as it was. Uh, Jeff says, who is it? And we hear pizza delivery. And Jeff responds with, what's the damage? And we hear six so far. And I remember the first time watching this was, man, $6 for a pizza. Man, that's so cheap. That's awesome. And I wasn't really paying attention because they go to the door to get the pizza And as soon as they open it, we see the pizza delivery man with no eyes. They've been drilled out. And he literally falls right on the floor in Trish's house. And everyone freaks out. And I got to give credit to Jeff because Jeff grabs the pizza guy's legs and pulls him in. Right. And smart enough to slam the door. I was like, kudos to that move. I
1: noted that as well.
0: So it wasn't really until the second time, because I was trying to figure, I'm like, how do we not hear the pizza man get murdered with the drill? And that's when I realized, holy crap, the pizza man was actually Russ speaking as the pizza guy. Right. And was setting it up. And the six so far is the six that he has killed that day. So I thought that was pretty smart. I was a little slow. I'll admit it to, to catch on to it. But good moment. Good scene.
1: I had this written down as well. This was my next favorite moment. It is great because it had me thinking as well. Now, I did pick up on the fact that it was the killer on the other side of the door. And when he said six so far, when he says so far, I'm like, oh, that's the killer. Cool. But then I was going, wait a minute. He's killed six. So I paused the movie and I'm going over it. I'm counting on my fingers. I'm going, oh, it's first he killed the phone woman. Then it was... Linda, then it was Mr. Content and then it was John and Diane. That's five. He's only killed five so far and I'm like already about to write this down as a complaint. I'm like this is wrong and then of course Jeff opens the door and the pizza delivery guy is the sixth one that he's killed. I I did the
0: same I thought that was pretty smart. I was
1: like no he's only killed five so far but the sixth is the pizza delivery guy himself. So great. Clever moment there.
0: All right, what do you got next for scene or moment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, My next favorite scene is... I'm actually going to go with another dual death here. I got to go with Jeff and Neil because I'll start with Jeff. Now, at this point, uh, our boys have crashed the party. That's Jeff and Neil, whom we've already mentioned because in that moment we talked about, well, they were already inside and hanging out with the girls and uh, ready for the pizza to show up. And yes, Jeff had, uh, you know, when he had surprised... The girl's in the garage in the dark, which was not a good idea. One of them gets a good swipe at him, giving him a black eye. And I love the fact that Trish tries to cure his black eye or ease the pain, the bruising, with some cold hot dogs. Okay, yeah. I mean, they didn't have any frozen meat or a steak, I guess, in the freezer. That's what they were looking for. And clearly no ice pack. So they went with hot dogs. And regardless, they're hanging out. But now at this point... We know that the pizza delivery guy has been murdered, he's missing his eyes, and there's a killer on the loose outside. And Jeff and Neil, being the good guys they are, they decide that desperate times require desperate measures, and thus they decide to split up. Jeff's going to go out the back through the garage to go get help, and Neil is going to go across the street to Valerie's house to seek her help. Now, when Jeff goes into the garage, which of course is completely dark, He doesn't see any of the mess that was left from the killer before because we know John and Diane have been killed in the garage before this, but Jeff doesn't see that. So he goes to the garage door and uh, while he's trying to open it, all of a sudden he hears some creaking from above. Suddenly, but strangely, very slowly, the body of Diane swings downward toward him and he sees a big old drill hole in her forehead. Diane's clearly dead. He screams, and as he's screaming and freaking out, we hear the drill fire up, the big old power drill fire up behind him, and it goes right through his back and through his shoulder, coming out the front. Pretty good effect. I liked it. I liked it a lot. And down goes Jeff. Now, meanwhile, Neil is running across the street to Valerie's house, and he's banging on the front door. But Valerie herself, well, she's watching another Roger Corman movie. It's a Roger Corman movie within a movie an old Roger Corman black-and-white movie called Hollywood Boulevard from 1976. She's got it on full blast, so she can't hear anything. And meanwhile, outside, you got Neil pounding on the door, going, Valerie, Valerie, we need help, we need help, let me in. And of course, our killer, Russ Thorne, comes out of the bushes with his drill. But Neil, to his credit, drums up the courage to go after the killer with his knife. Neil had brought a knife along with him. And, well, they... Kind of tackle each other and roll around in the grass a bit. And uh it's funny because I think in the middle of this, Valerie actually had heard the commotion that Neil was making at the front door, runs over, looks out the the, uh, the front door, but at this point the killers already come after Neil and vice versa, and for some reason they've rolled in the grass off screen, so Valerie can't see them, and it's like, oh, nothing's happening out there. Meanwhile, Neil and the killer, Russ Thorne, are uh, going at it. Neil drops the knife. The killer picks up the knife and stabs away. Goes right at Neil with the knife several times. And I thought this was kind of cool because there's a little creative editing and cutting here. The killer stabbing Neil is intercut with that black and white movie that Valerie is watching, that movie called Hollywood Boulevard, where a victim is being stabbed at the same time in that movie. And it goes back and forth. Between the stabbing in the movie, the movie within the movie, and then the stabbing that's happening in real time with the killer killing Neil. Uh, so I thought that was cool. I thought there was some some creative stuff going on in there. I like both those kills back to back.
0: Yeah, I had the uh, Jeff death scenes down as uh, one of my favorites. Not the best plan that Jeff and Neil were coming up with because I get they were trying to do one was going through the front door one was going through the back door. So that leaves you a 50-50 shot of the killer possibly catching and killing you. Right. I don't like those odds. But one of the things that is interesting about the movie is every time one of the girls get killed, it's implied. Whereas when you see Jeff and Neil get killed, Neil's death is pretty brutal. I mean, he just gets stabbed like 15 times. You're like, oh, my
1: Jesus Yeah, lots of blood. You see everything.
0: But the Jeff one I liked more because it's really the first time you see the drill in action actually going through someone, and he gets distracted by poor Diane, and then all of a sudden gets the drill. And then later on in the movie, we find out that Jeff isn't quite dead yet, and he's dragging himself through the backyard to try to get back to the house. And he's at the back door, and he's almost like pawing at it like a dog, and the girls hear it but they're afraid to answer the door thinking it could be the killer. And unfortunately Jeff is loud enough that Russ does see him and then comes up to him with the drill and offs him. And the girls are literally on the other side of the door listening to this. And then you see Jeff's blood and they realize there was someone out there that they possibly could have saved and just
1: yeah. made it worse. So
0: poor Jeff. Poor Jeff. It's it done
1: dirty. Good call, man. Because you are correct. Technically, the scene I described, yes, he was not actually killed. It's like he gets killed twice. Poor bastard.
0: Yep. Uh, so for me, my last one, it's uh, I guess it's a moment. And it's I, I just call it, we found Kim.
1: That's a, I get, We so, have the same stuff. I love it. That's exactly what I did, oh, Okay. Yeah, of course.
0: At this point in the movie, we were down to two of the uh, original four slumber party girls. And Russ Thorne gets into the house. And he stabs kim and the other girl is trish and trish gets away and and while this is going on valerie and her sister courtney have come into the house to investigate what's going on because trish was on the phone with coach Jana, and coach Jana heard all the commotion so coach Jana calls valerie to see if she could go over to the house. And then coach was like, you know what? It's not a good idea Just stay there. I'll come over. And while Valerie's waiting, Courtney decides she wants to go over and see what's going on. So Valerie goes after her. They're both in the house. They don't see anybody. No one's there. And since they're there, Courtney is like, Oh man, they're having a really good party. Can I have a beer? And Valerie's like, no, you can't have a beer. And, Courtney goes to open the refrigerator door, and while she opens it, we see the dead body of Kim in the refrigerator. You thinks she's going to fall out of the refrigerator, but then Valerie tells Courtney, get out, get out of the fridge. You can't have a beer. So she closes it, and then she does it a second time. Valerie says to Courtney again, no, shut that door. You're not having a beer. You're too young. Let's go. So Courtney closes it again, and once again, you see you think Kim's going to fall out, but she doesn't. She, she swings herself back in. So Valerie's going to the front door. Courtney kind of gives her a look, screw this, I'm going to grab a beer, and she goes to open the fridge door, and at that point, when she goes to swing it open, out flops Kim with the knife still in her chest. She screams. Valerie comes over. She screams, and then lo and behold, here comes Russ Thorne. Pretty good moment. I thought it was pretty funny. Pretty clever. I thought it was a cool way to unveil a dead body, which usually happens in slasher movies. They go back and you go through the trail of everyone that's been killed before. But I thought this way was certainly tongue in cheek.
1: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. It's in the trailer if you watch it on IMDb. It's very funny. And the fact that, you know, Courtney goes to the fridge like three times before Kim falls out. So they repeat the joke over and over. It works. So I I did like that very much. It could easily fall into complaints as well because there's just no way in hell Kim's body wouldn't just fall out from the weight of the body pressing against the door. And I guess if you do look into the goofs on IMDb as well, it is listed that I, I wasn't looking for it because I was just enjoying it as it played out. But I think you are able to see at one point that the actress playing Kim is pulling herself into the fridge. You can see her right arm pulling her body up into the fridge when the door is closing. So she stays within it. And my other question was pretty crafty on the, on the behalf of the, of Russ Thorne, the killer to clear out the shelving within the fridge to fit the body in there.
0: No. Oh, yeah. That's not something I would <laughs> where, take. I'm
1: like, where did, where did all the shelving go? Where did he put all those yep. shelves? From the fridge? Uh, I'm being nitpicky because it's a great visual. It's a great visual gag and it works. And it's yes. very funny. I loved it too.
0: So anything else for scenes or moments?
1: Nothing else for me. We can move on.
0: All right. So let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaints. And why why do we call it Swiss cheese?
1: Because although this movie is delicious, it does have drilling holes.
0: Yes. If it doesn't have those drilling holes, we file a complaint with the complaints department. Jason, do you have any Swiss cheese or complaints you'd like to share?
1: I got a couple. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Knowing that an escaped murderer is on the loose, which we've seen as a newspaper headline and we've heard it on news radio in the movie, you would think it would be near the top of things to talk about, the topics of conversation among the kids or the teachers or the coaches or anybody would be warning the kids at least to keep an eye out for an escaped murderer in your city. I think it's really funny in this movie that outside of the newspaper headline and hearing it on the radio... Nobody, none of our characters, not once, talk about the fact that there's a killer on the loose.
0: That is excellent because we just had recently not too long ago that person who escaped from Pennsylvania. the Pennsylvania prison That's and right. that was all over the news every
1: day it was in the headlines because it was and I was like I was freaking out and I wasn't even near the area. And I was like, oh my God, they can't find this guy.
0: That's a good point you would think everybody would be talking about the school would be worn in, the parents
1: well it goes to your point bill when you said there's no tension in this movie and that would have added to the tension to if you know there's a killer on the loose there would be some fear built in at least the the protagonists would know that they've got to kind uh, of keep they'd right, be they can be about joking. They'd, yeah exactly they joke about it or lock the doors and it would make it harder for the killer to get in or they'd have to it just it would make it then the killer would have to be more creative about tracking down these kids and going on his killing spree if people were aware that he was even around.
0: Yeah, because there's that one scene when Valerie and Courtney are in the house and you hear the trash cans fall, and one of them could have made a joke like, Oh my God, Russ Thorne's out there. Yeah. Then Valerie goes out to clean up the cans, and that makes her super nervous because what are the chances it actually would be? I mean, it's not, but he is there. But Right, right, right. It would just build the tension yeah. of, oh, my God,
1: he is there.
0: But no, that's a good call. It would be all over the place, even back then.
1: Sure. What do you got, man?
0: I'm just going to go back to that girl's basketball.
1: All right. Was, let's get back that to it. It was just
0: God awful. I would just think, either as a writer or a director, if I'm watching them play and it's just that bad, I would have thought of something else for them to do instead of play basketball something maybe that would take less athletic proudness. They are terrible. And there's even that one scene when the girl takes a shot, it bounces off the backboard right into the other girl's hands. And she's underneath the basket. Right. And I'm like, shoot the ball, and shoot the ball. Just and she passes it, passes <laughs> it out. I know, I'm like, what it? are you doing?
1: You're under the basket. You got to shoot it. I just would have had him do something else. Well, I think at one point I was like, okay, well, at least this girl can dribble somewhat. And other than that, It's clunky. It doesn't look great. It's not like a well-edited sports sequence. And it just doesn't serve the story. Everything in this movie just kind of happens. Not kind of, it just happens. So why even have them playing basketball at all? How does that feed the narrative? It doesn't. You know what it shows? It shows that because you have our protagonists, Kim and Trish, are on one team and Valerie, the new girl, is on the other team and she's tall and she's pretty and they're jealous of her. That conversation carries over a little bit into the showers. But again, that does not come into play in the story at all. It doesn't feed the story. It doesn't play into how the relationships unfold throughout the rest of the movie and how if they were to have to work together in order to defeat the killer, overcome... Doesn't play into it, so it's just pointless. So you don't the scene's unnecessary.
0: And then you have Jeff and Neil out there in the gym, just leering at them, gawking. Coach, kick those two boneheads out. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're gonna have them in there doing that, have the girls do calisthenics or something where they're bending over. And I mean, if you're gonna do the TNA thing,
1: right? The exploitation. Yeah.
0: Have them stretching, jumping jacks. Sure, not
1: basketball. Yeah, it's a calisthenics thing or whatever it is for PE yeah. in high school. And if you're gonna do the the sort of some sort of rivalry or jealousy between girls, then that has to come into play as a story element that plays into some sort of plot point throughout in later in the movie. But it just is never pumped, it does it's pointless. Yeah, it's a funny scene. All right, complaints. Let's see. Oh, yeah. This was uh, with Valerie and her younger sister, Courtney, when they do go over to Trish's house to see what's going on. Because initially, Valerie has been alerted that maybe something's off, that there was some screaming because she had the phone call from Coach Jenna. But then younger sister, Courtney, she just goes over to Trish's house because she has gotten her makeup done by Valerie and she has her hair put up. She's looking pretty and she kind of wants to just go be a part of the slumber party and just kind of like, Hey girls, what's going on? And she's just the younger one that looks up to the older girls. And so Courtney just walks right over and we know that they eventually both Valerie and Courtney end up over there and they get inside and they find Kim dead in the fridge. And then, I think, well, actually, I apologize. I think right before that, this is what happens. So we got to back up for a second. When Valerie goes after Courtney, when she goes across the street to Trisha's house, she knocks on the front door. Then Valerie goes around to the back and knocks on that door. And there's no answer there either. And she looks down and notices the blood stain on the door and the pool of blood on the ground, which belonged to Jeff, as Bill laid out. Jeff, that's where Jeff finally met his demise, but his body has been removed. So Valerie's looking right at the pool of blood. Then Courtney shows up to surprise Valerie, but she's fine. And then Valerie has this conversation with her. Hey, the house is dark. It's weird. Doesn't seem like anybody's there. And doesn't even mention the fact that there's blood on the ground. It was just weird to me. She has this brief conversation with her sister saying, yeah, nobody's here. I don't know what's going on. We should just leave. And by the way, there is a giant pool of blood on the ground, and we should probably call the cops. How about that? It was just funny to me that she just forgets to mention the blood, and then it's great because Courtney like looks off to the side and cue the uh, lightning and thunder effect.
0: Oh yeah, comes out it nowhere. Timely. That didn't make any sense to me when she's. I like, am like, you don't notice that's blood. Like, I mean, okay, it's outside, it's dark, it might not look like blood, but there is definitely something there and she doesn't really examine it further. Come on. Yeah, it's foul
1: play has occurred here. It was Yeah, obvious, I agree with that. Valerie missed something there.
0: Um, this could be a goof, or it could be a complaint. There's a scene where on the girls, uh, the slumber parties just start it, and they're in the house, and they hear something in the kitchen, and they go to investigate, and Trish is like, oh, no, I left a burner on, and the coffee pot explodes. So if it's on... The stove and the burner is on was the first thing she does. She literally grabs the pot. Hello? You know how hot that is right now? Now you have blisters all over your hands. Oh, totally. She doesn't even try to turn up the burner. You could tell yeah. the burner's not even on. But what the hell? You can't touch that. Instinct would have been to pick it up by the handle and put it in the sink. Not literally grab the glass coffee pot with your hands and look at
1: it. It's ridiculous. I don't know how they uh,
0: missed that when they were filming
1: that. It's just kind of like, sometimes we watch these movies and you always, you wonder like a film takes a collaborative effort. And a lot of times you have like a script supervisor, you have a continuity person who's keeping an eye out for things, but it's like, you should just have a common sense coordinator or a common sense consultant or some sort of common sense supervisor. Just to watch things unfold and go, would somebody actually do that? Because it defies common sense or w- whatever it may be. It's just funny that we always watch these movies going, is there just no oversight? Is nobody paying attention to the details? And God knows as a filmmaker myself and you too, Bill, and, and our friends, we know that we can get too close to a project, especially if you're the writer, director, uh, or even an actor, sometimes you just can't see the forest for the trees and you miss things. But that's why you have a team. So somebody should be looking out for those obvious mistakes. Correct. This was a little nitpicky. But when Valerie initially went into Trish's house, she's calling for the others. And we see Trish and Kim upstairs. They do not respond to her. Oh, I know. And Kim's like, that's Valerie. We should sit. we should call out to her. And Trish is like, No. What if she's friends with the killer? What the F are you talking about? I know. Why would you think Valerie's friends with the killer? What has given you that, like, inclination whatsoever? And she explains later, I think Trish does say something to the effect. Well, Jackie had gone to the front door and the killer was there, which he was, and that's how Jackie gets killed. But Valerie comes through the doors, like, or vice, whatever the order was, I'm maybe getting this mixed up, but she's like, well, maybe Valerie's teaming up with the killer. That's a reach there, Trish. Yeah, that's a hell of a conspiracy theory right there. You missed a major opportunity, and Kim ends up getting killed as a result. Oh, yeah,
0: that was a complaint, too.
1: If they would have just yelled out to Valerie when she came in the first time, then they would have teamed up and gotten the hell out of there. Uh, I only got a couple other ones. What else do you got here, Uh
0: Yeah, poor Kim's death. So they're up in the bedroom, in Trish's room, I assume, and Russ literally climbs through the bedroom window because, you know, you should leave it wide open when you have a killer running around the house. (laughs) And somehow he misses the girls initially, even though they had their back to him. And I think it was Trish hits Russ with the bat and knocks him out. Mm -hmm. And instead of checking on him, they try to move the barricade they have in front of the door. But they're too slow, and Russ gets up right away. Oh yeah, and stabs Kim. And man, Trish doesn't even give it a thought. She just
1: whoop. Moving see on. See you later, Kim.
0: <laughs> Some friend. Brutal. I I
1: noted that too.
0: I looked at my wife at that scene. She's like, "Yeah, I probably would have left her too." And I get it. I probably would have maybe done the same thing. At least throw out a sorry.
1: Or like, no, Kim, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Downstairs for me. Oh, Trish. So back to Valerie at this point in the movie. Now I keep, I keep har- harping on Valerie scenes, but she has now the killers inside the house running around. Valerie's in there. Courtney is in there too. And she tells her sister, Courtney run, but the killer is kind of in between them. So Courtney needs to go one way. And Valerie uh, takes the option of going downstairs. And I just wanted to note that this house in Venice, California has, has a downstairs. Usually you don't get a lot of downstairs in homes in California. So, I clocked out, but Valerie goes downstairs, closes the door behind her. She runs into the dead pizza delivery guy. Well, she's got to go to the workbench to look for a weapon, which I give her credit. (laughs) You mean she's going for it. She's like, I got to go on the attack here. I got to find something to defend myself, take out this killer. And there's just a wide array of tools at the workbench. It just kind of made me just think of Workshed from Evil Dead too, but There's all kinds of things, and she actually picks up a drill, which I thought was kind of funny, and she picks up like a little drill bit, and she's like, oh, that's not going to (laughs) work. This is really funny, because the killer's got a huge drill, right? So I thought that was a cute moment. But then her choice is to go with a giant electric circular saw. (laughs) I'm like, what? That's a little unwieldy. (laughs) Like, why would you choose that of all things? But then, of course, then she ends up going for a machete, which I was like, why is there a machete down there? Unless they've got a lot of overgrown foliage and bush around that particular house. Maybe in Venice. I don't know. That's what requires a machete to get through the jungle of Venice. I just thought that was funny that she chooses that circular saw, which, of course, is then connected by an extension cord to the wall, which stretches out only so far and she... Can't use the saw regardless then. Because she can't go all the way upstairs. Right, because it's plugged so. into
0: something on the other side of the basement. You could have found another yeah. plug, maybe. The extension cord. Yeah. It would be funny if she ran upstairs with it thinking she was good. And then the plug comes out again. And don't
1: get me wrong, yeah. The image of, let's say, like a, a tough woman coming into her own in this moment. Just finding her courage. Finding her inner strength. And she pulls up this giant saw and, the vroom, 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 and revs it. That's a cool image. But it's just... Not practical.
0: I thought she was going to do herself in. To be honest, oh yeah, she totally, and started running off with it. I was like, oh, she's going to kill herself. Oh man, here we're thinking she's going to be the hero and she dies. All right, my last complaint. Let's just talk about Courtney real quick.
1: All right, let's talk about Courtney.
0: Two quick questions: uh, Does Courtney work at Hooters part time? The way she's <laughs> rocking those orange short shorts, I was like, oh, Hooters waitress.
1: I can't believe I haven't said my i have my usual my signature phrase holy shit short shorts because you are absolutely right she is she's uh not leaving a whole lot to the imagination young courtney
0: right and then how old is she supposed to be
1: good question it's tough i i we don't know, she's know why beyond fifth grade was in my my head but we're we're thinking the the older girls are seniors they're supposed to be 18 right i yeah i figured she was like 15 14 15 okay.
0: I wonder how old she really was. I couldn't find that information. Oh, yeah. Because she seemed like she was probably 18, 19 in real life. And I could not, for the life of me, figure out what age she was trying to play in the movie because it seemed like her attitude fluctuated from like an 11-year-old to like a 15-year-old to like a 12-year-old to 16. I'm I'm like, how old are you supposed to be?
1: I I don't know. Right. And she's a pretty girl, but it's still like you're watching a gun. there's something wrong with this. <laughs> There's my. Nice? But
0: she looks. She literally looks like she's wearing Hooters issued. Sh- oh, it's aren't you're shorts. You're right.
1: You're right. They are Hooters shorts. Totally. There's some issues with the finale and continuity. I mean, the final action set piece, if you will, when you've got Valerie and Courtney and Trish basically going after the killer, but it all starts with a monoe mono between Valerie and Russ Thorn outside the pool they're at the, in the pool area and Valerie's going after the killer with her machete and he's got the drill there's a great moment where she chops the drill in half and that's you know obviously there's some overt symbolism right there just uh, oh, yeah. you know castrating him and cuts yeah cuts that big drill right in half with the machete cool moment and then she just starts hacking at him and pretty gory chops his hand off he drops the drill, and at one point with his right hand that is still attached, he reaches out for her, and he's got this weird look on his face. We've barely heard anything from the killer at this point. He has spoken a few lines, which are really creepy. And he's reaching out toward her, and then in the next shot, he's got the drill back in his hand. It just pops back into his hand all of a sudden, and it's just really like all over the freaking place. Then, she, well, she slices him across the stomach. He falls into the pool, but somehow survives that, climbs out and then falls onto the machete, and it's just, it's a lot. And it's very typical, like, again, I get it. There's probably listeners going, idiot, Jason, it's a frickin' parody slasher film. But the problem with the movie sometimes is that it knows what it it is, but kind of tries to be serious in moments, and then is a parody in others. So that final action piece, the final kill and everything, is a little messy, literally and figuratively.
0: Well, the biggest mistake they always make, and this is anytime it has something to do with water, someone falls into a body of water and they get out and 10 seconds later, they're instant dry.
1: Right. That was another continuity issue. (laughs) Right. I read that too. Yeah.
0: I mean, he was in the pool for a while. He should be sopping
1: wet. Oh, I hate it when I fall into a pool with my jeans on too. That's the worst. (laughs) It takes forever for your jeans to dry.
0: Yeah. Not for Russ. He was fine.
1: Uh, good stuff anything else uh no that's it for me
0: all right let's move on to hey
1: it's an actor all right
0: so in this segment we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films an actor making their big screen debut or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo it's hey it's an
1: actor who we choose this week all right well you would think this is uh it's a movie with mostly female protagonists. It's all about the ladies in this movie, both creators and actors and producers and writers. But I went with a gentleman I chose for this week's Hey, It's That actor, David Milburn, who plays Jeff, who sort of gets killed twice in this, as we've described. Friend to Neil, and we know nothing else about Jeff whatsoever, except that he yeah, should have stuck with the Boy Scouts. From IMDb, we know that David Milburn is an Emmy Award-winning actor and producer. He was a child actor in commercials. He was in the McDonald's spot called Glasses to Go and was the smile behind their Sunday Smile campaign. Sunday as in the dessert. And by 17 years old, David had already studied and worked with Lee Strasberg at the Actor Studio in New York City. After graduating from Northwestern University, he had a role playing Lance Hurt on ABC's General Hospital. Hey, Hillary should love that, huh, Bill? Yeah. And that brought him to L.A., and David's first film was a lead in this movie, Roger Corman's The Slumber Party Massacre, which, as we know, became a cult favorite. Uh, He had more feature film roles, which included Sir Ian McKellen's Doctor in the Oscar-winning Gods and Monsters. He was Mariel Hemingway's captor in... In Her Line of Fire, and Alfred Molina's Match in Texas Rangers. He was in a lot of movie of the week, or I should say movie of the weeks. Some of those titles, Past Obsessions, An Accidental Christmas, Fatal Reunion for Lifetime, Christmas Do-Over, I'll Remember April, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, Etc. etc. So he did end up getting into producing. He created and was the host of the game show Mod Couples on Hulu. He wrote and directed the series Falling for Angels and Now What? Both of those for Here TV. He produces Food Fetish, Behind the Bar, and Girls Voices Now, for which he won the Daytime Emmy Award for Outstanding Short Form Children's Programming. I wanted to say this. Lastly, he is credited for producing at least four episodes of a series called *Galians* from 2022. I just wanted to say *Galians*. As an actor, he's got at least one upcoming project entitled Dead, Dead, Dead Ringer, which is supposedly in production. David Milburn is this week's Hey, It's That Act.
0: Just going through this, trying to figure out who can we actually pick. And I probably went through almost everybody else in the cast except for him. (laughs) You just told me everything I missed, so I appreciate that. All right, good. Happy to help. All right, time to move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about the Slumber Party Massacre?
1: Yeah, here's a quick one. Author and feminist activist Rita Mae Brown wrote the original uh, screenplay titled Sleepless Nights as a parody of the slasher film. But producers repurposed Brown's script to make a serious slasher film against her wishes.
0: So director Amy Holden-Jones, who was a film editor, made her feature film debut with this movie. Um, There is a story that Amy had to turn down editing E.T. in order to make this film. Amy also became a screenwriter and wrote a movie that we covered on this podcast, 1988's Mystic Pizza which was part of our second annual Summer at the Cinema
1: series. Yeah, I saw that. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. So there have been two sequels to the film, Slumber Party Massacre 2 in 1987 and Slumber Party Massacre 3 in 1990. Jason Paul Cullum directed the documentary Sleepless Nights, revisiting the Slumber Party Massacres. Other films in the Massacre film series include a second trilogy, Sorority House Massacre, In 1986, Sorority House Massacre 2, Nighty uh, nighty Nightmare, 1990, and Sorority House Massacre 3, Hard to Die, in 1990. And a third series, Cheerleader Massacre in 2003 and Cheerleader Massacre 2 in 2011. The former filmed as Slummer Party Massacre 4 before being renamed during post-production.
0: A whole Slumber Party Massacre universe. Marvel, you weren't the first.
1: Spinoffs, big franchise.
0: All right, so Sylvester Stallone makes an appearance in this movie. (laughs) So he he is on the cover of the Playgirl magazine that Courtney is looking for in Valerie's room. The issue of Playgirl was from July 1981, but the pictures of Stallone in the magazine were before
1: Stallone became a success with Rocky, which is back in 1976. Michael Valella, and there's a ton of trivia on him. It's just really funny. I'm going to rattle this off. I give him credit, man, because he took this seriously. Michael Valella read the book Helter Skelter in order to research the role of Russ Thorne. He created a whole backstory for his killer character, well beyond what's mentioned in the film. He also stayed somewhat in character during filming, which helped creep out the young women. It was my first acting job, he stated. He also deliberately isolated himself and avoided talking to the other cast members during shooting the picture. For a majority of the shoot, he was feeling like his character rather than just acting it out. He recalled uttering mama during his final death scene, but Amy Holden Jones, director, nixed it for fear of it garnering the killer some sympathy. He also based his physical body movements as Russ Thorne on the peacock. I love it. I laugh only because I'm an actor myself, and God knows I've gone too far with roles done backstory and written character background and really delve deep into it, only to have so much appear on the screen and make none of that pl- you know, play on the screen in the final cut. So nobody would ever know that I did any work on the character. So God bless you, Michael Valella, for putting in the effort your first acting role. He went for it.
0: Yeah. Still trying to
1: figure out the peacock thing Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) is what it is. Um, so a little interesting backstory to Brink Stevens who played Linda, who was our locker room victim. So Brink was born in uh, San Diego and she initially pursued a career as a marine biologist prior to becoming an actress earning an undergraduate degree in biology from San Diego state university before studying marine biology at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Unable to find employment in the field of biology, Stevens began modeling Los Angeles in 1980, and she worked as a film extra. Her first major role was Slumber Party Massacre, and then she went on to appear in a number of horror films, including Sorority Babes in the Slime Ball Ballorama, 1988, Nightmare Sisters, also in 1988. Grandmother's House, also in 1988, and Mommy in 1995. Talk about sidetrack.
1: Wow. Very good. Let's stick with some actors. What do you say? How about Aaron Lipstadt, who plays the pizza boy, who's dead the whole time? Yeah, he actually directed Android in 1982, which was also released in 1982. And Android was produced by Roger Corman, who also produced... Like I said before, Hollywood Boulevard. The film being watched by Valerie.
0: A little bit of sad news, though. Uh, Robin Still, who plays Valerie, was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So that's what kind of piqued my interest when I saw this, and eventually found her way to Hollywood after she moved there as a child with her family. After starring in Slumber Party Massacre, she went on to star in films such as. See if this sounds familiar: Sorority Babes in the Slime Ball <laughs> Is Babes Peterson. Uh, some other roles included the 1987 films Vampire Nights and Winners Take All, as well as an episode of Jake and the Fat Man and the 1991 film American Ninja 4, The Annihilation. Uh, Sad so to report, though, that at the age of 34 in Burbank, California, Robin would take her own life. And she's currently buried at Rose Hills Memorial Park in Whittier, California, which I unfortunately had to visit over the summer for a
1: funeral for a friend. Very sad. Very sad. Yeah, I had read that, too. Gone too soon. Definitely. Amy Holden Jones, director, is not very sympathetic to people who complain that she's a sellout to her gender as a woman who produced an exploitation flick with a lot of naked girls in it. Quote, that's what Roger Corman, the producer, wanted. And that's how it's done. You give the studio what they want. Nobody complains that Scorsese, Jonathan Demi, and Ron Howard made exploitation pictures, but when a woman tries, she gets called a hypocrite and a turncoat. That's BS. And as Bill noted, and it should be noted, that Holden Jones has parlayed her success into a, a good film career producing Mystic Pizza and uh, The Getaway. Take that.
0: Yeah, I don't blame her. I mean, all right, if we were to go look at all the movies that were made that year, how many of them would have been female directors? Mm-hmm. Handful, maybe? If you got the opportunity, you got to take it. And I mean, we're still 41 years later, still way behind. Oh, no question about the, it. The female director to male ratio. So way to be a pioneer there.
1: Hell yeah. I got one last tidbit here because I mentioned the fact that these girls in this movie are just trying to figure out what happened in that Dodger game the night before. <laughs> Ugh. Well, the Los Angeles Dodgers game that the girls are trying to figure out is from May 17th, 1981. The Dodgers did beat the Mets 6-1, to and yes, say, did Homer.
0: Yeah, I was happy to find that information also. (laughs) Glad you reported it. All right, so let's move on to box office. The Slumber Party Massacre was released on September 10th, 1982 in select theaters in Los Angeles, and then was released on November 12th in select theaters in New York. On an estimated budget of $220,000, there are no known confirmed numbers how it did at the box office. I did read it grossed $3.6 million domestically, but it's not listed on any year-end box office numbers, and I checked IMDb, the numbers, and Box Office Mojo. The movie is not listed on any of the end-of-year box office reports, which I thought was kind of interesting. No kidding. But if it did actually make $3.6 million on that small budget, that's definitely a hit in my book. No doubt about it. So moving on to reviews. Surprisingly, Sneak Previews did not review this movie for their show. Uh, Leonard Maltin, however, did give the movie one and a half out of four stars. The DVD and video guide gave the movie a turkey, which equates to one star out of five stars. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 43%, and it has an IMDB rating of 5.6. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about the Slumber Party Massacre?
1: Well, one of the reasons I brought up Aaron Lipstadt as the pizza boy was not only because he did direct Android in 1982, but also I just I want to say he does great work in this film. He's dead the entire time and completely believable as a dead guy. But the best aspect is the fact that he made sure his delivery hat slash cap would stay on even under the most dire circumstances. That hat isn't going anywhere. Even when his body is dragged down the hall and then thrown down the stairs into the basement, that hat stays on his head.
0: Yeah, that is pretty good. He must have it like bobby pinned on or something. I didn't even think about that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Damn. That's good. He kept that hat on. He's like Indiana Jones, the pizza man. (laughs) He's exactly like Indiana Jones. Yes. All right, I'm going to get really deep here about Russ Thorne and the deep meeting of what his character is. Oh, yeah, here we go. So I did not come up with this, so I I found this from various articles. So think about this when you watch this movie again. So Russ Thorne is designed to represent the male sex drive and a woman's fear of penetration. Russ's drill weapon is given a lot of phallic imagery and he makes a few sexual comments. It takes a lot of love for a person to do this. Yep. Before he attempts to kill Trish, Thorne takes some time to fondle his drill and say things like, I love you. I know what you want. And of course, at the end, as you mentioned, Valerie comes out with the machete, she ends up castrating him the representative of that drill. A lot of deep meaning. It's really deep underneath the surface oh, of this film. Yeah, so, so think deep. about that when you watch this.
1: Yeah, it's not obvious at all. We're getting just jokes, folks. It's jokes because, yeah, phallic symbols everywhere. Or just the drill, I should say.
0: I always used to say that in English class, when we'd be doing Shakespeare and, and your teacher would get the, you know, the deep meanings about it. And I, the back of my mind, I always just think to myself, maybe he just wrote it because he needed the money. Mm. Maybe, maybe there isn't all the
1: symbolism. We're, we're just bullshitting. right? Totally. Here's a, an additional thought. Wait, Trish has a boyfriend? This happens really early in the movie. Trish is dropped off by a, her boyfriend named Mark, who rides a motorcycle. She kisses him and says goodbye. And I'm like, wait a minute, did I miss something? Is there a deleted scene? What happened to Mark, Trish's boyfriend? Is he in any of the sequels? Because he doesn't come back in this movie and is never mentioned of again. <laughs> All the girls are talking about boys. Diane's got John Minor. They're talking about this, that, the other thing. What I, I don't know. And it's just kind of like, well, here's Trish's boyfriend on a motorcycle. He's got a nice thick mustache. I don't know. What happened to Mark and his mustache?
0: Yeah, I wasn't exactly sure if that was... A boyfriend. Well, she kisses him. Well,
1: I don't know. Is that know. what friends did know. back in the early 80s, 19? You know, it was the 80s. That's Maybe. If you had a bike, all the girls kissed you. True.
0: Yeah, that was kind of like, yeah, she came out of nowhere with him.
1: And it's funny because then the camera pans over because she walks into her house and it pans over to Valerie's house, which is directly next door. But later on in the mm-hmm. film, the way it's played, it seems as though Valerie's house is actually across the street but they're next door right. to each other in that shot.
0: Yeah, no, they they are literally
1: next door to each other, mm-hmm. which is also odd because Valerie's like the supposed to be the new girl in school and nobody knows right. her, but she lives right next door to Trish. Maybe
0: that's why Trish is
1: trying to be nice to her. Yeah.
0: But yeah, you would think they're that maybe the neighbors. Mark, there would be a scene where Mark would pick up Trish from the school. Yeah. Maybe he's an older boy,
1: her college boyfriend.
0: Now I'm really thinking about it before. It's just like, ah, oh, whatever.
1: Well, he doesn't he's not in the beginning of the movie. We don't see him at any point. It's not even no, we don't even get a it. close up of him. It's a wide nope. shot. Yeah. Him pulling up on his motorcycle with her on the back. He drops her off. She kisses him on the lips and says goodbye. He rides off and the camera pans over to see Valerie walking into her house directly next door. Hold on a second. Who's Mark? <laughs>
0: I wouldn't be surprised if it was just someone on set
1: who had a motorcycle. That was that's in, in the research. There is something oh, is to that effect of that people were trying to figure out who that guy was because I don't think he's listed in the credits. I could be wrong, but they were thinking he is either a producer or um, some people were joking that he was some big time uh, like a like a name producer that just popped in for that one shot just to be in the movie, but nobody could really identify him.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny because you have the scene early on. We we have our first victim who's the uh, telephone repair woman. Super cute. <laughs> well, Jeez. the only reason I find out her name, her name's Mary, because if you watch the trailer, they mention her name, Ah, but it's not listed in the credits on IMDb. It's just listed as telephone repair woman. There you go. Yeah. I, don't know. I was like, you know, if you want to know, her name's Mary. And then, and the reason I bring up the Mark thing also because when we first go to Coach uh Jana's house and we have the little surprise where the drill comes through the door, right? The girl that opens it is not an actress. She's part of the crew. That's right. So, yeah, I was wondering the same thing as Mark. I was just like, right. who's got a motorcycle? I do. Okay. You're going to be in the scene. I'm not an actor. Ah, don't worry. It'll be wide. No one will see you.
1: you. You work with what you got and they had, a yeah, didn't have a lot of money and made the best of it.
0: Yeah. That's what you do. It's just sometimes those stories about what they had to do in order to make a movie like that. They're, are almost sometimes better than the movie itself.
1: I did have just one quick question and uh, putting you on the spot here. Do you have okay. a favorite parody slasher movie? Because this particular film was originally written as a, a parody and that's why it came out the way then the producers step in and go no we want this to be serious but the parody comes through that's just made me think it's like what other parody slasher movies are out there and i think there's one that's pretty obvious that's definitely my favorite but i do not know if you had any that come to mind
0: oh yeah i guess you would say scream right
1: that's the number one and then we covered april fool's day that's what another I one yeah i know you you're a fan those are the two that pop in my head. Me too. And I, I invite the listeners to to write in, to comment. Let us know.
0: All right. Anything else? Nope. All right. Rating time. So on a scale of one to five drill
1: bits, what do you give the Slumber Party Massacre? I'm going right down the middle. I'm going with 2.5 drill bits. I thought about giving it two, but man, I kind of had fun with this. I had I kind of indulged. Invite your friends over to watch this, ladies and gents. Fire up the popcorn, as I said. Have a few cocktails, have a few laughs. This is not a cinematic masterpiece, but it is a cult classic it's a It's of a piece of a genre. It's because it's a Roger Corman production and its exploitation, and it couldn't help but be a parody and in spite of all efforts to the contrary, I mean, it's a good, bad movie. It doesn't take itself seriously, nor should you. Two and a half drill bits for me.
0: I am right there with you, Jason. Two and a half. The acting's okay. The movie itself is simple. I love low-budget movies that somehow make it happen. And the important thing is, too, knowing that they're sequels, this movie is good enough to make me want to watch the sequels to see where they went from this. You did that. I'm gonna give it another shot with the whole slumber party massacre universe, and uh, I'd recommend do the same if you haven't seen it. Give it a shot. It's it's not a masterpiece by no stretch of the imagination, but it's it's a quick 87 minutes, 77 minutes, 77 minutes. Jesus, yeah, yeah, pretty short. So you don't have too much to lose. Two and a half drill bits to me. Um, Okay, so I think that about wraps it up for uh, this week's episode.
1: All right. And I would like to make a quick announcement, a little promotion of something that I, Jason Massick, am currently involved in. If you happen to be in the Southern California area, specifically the San Gabriel Valley, and even more specifically near the area of Arcadia, well, I happen to host the Rock and Bingo Night at Matt Denny's Ale House Restaurant in Arcadia, and that's on Huntington Boulevard. Come one, come all! It is absolutely free. It's a fun twist on traditional bingo. It's your favorite game, just with the element of rock and roll. We've been doing it for a couple of months now, and it's just getting bigger. So. If you want to have a a fun night out with some good food, some good drink provided by Matt Denny's Ale House, and you want to come out and listen to some rock and roll, you can play some bingo, and you can win some fun prizes, and you can listen to yours truly on the mic as I host the show. And you know what? We do a lot of 80s rock and roll, but it would be an opportunity for me to meet you, and we can talk about our podcast So if you're in the area, if you're in Arcadia, come on out to Matt Denny's Alehouse on Tuesday nights, Tuesday nights from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. for Rockin' Bingo, presented by Game Night Live. All right, don't forget
0: to check that out. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com If you want to reach out, please email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com For our next episode, our splatter cinema month continues as we head back to Crystal Lake to see what has happened to the boy Jason Voorhees. I think he has all grown up for Friday the 13th Part
1: 2 starring Amy Steele. You can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. Well, life goes on after all, and eating makes me feel best when I feel bad. boy, do I feel bad. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. For more information, you can find Matt Denny's Ale House Restaurant at their website online. You can just Google Matt Denny's Ale House Restaurant or go to GameNightLive.com.